Welcome to the Savvy Marketer Podcast. For those who are listening, I would like to introduce you to a very good friend and a brilliant man. His name is Greg Kahn. And Greg, you have been in the advertising and media world for many years. I would say for over two decades. What inspired you to create the IoT Consortium? Hi, Alex. First of all, so good to see you virtually and uh, such a pleasure to be on your podcast. You're right. I was in media, all sides of media for about 20 years. I spent 10 years in film and television and then another 10 in digital advertising and publishing. And I was watching what was coming out of Silicon Valley and Asia and Israel as it relates. Some people call it the fourth industrial revolution. And there was just a wave of technology that was coming over society. And I felt it really important for the third, what I call the third chapter of my career, for me to spend at least the next 10 years, not just doing it on a cursory basis, but really being a change agent in the space. Because I had felt while my time in advertising and my time in film and television had been so dynamic, there was such a sea change happening in deep tech with respect to hardware and, and software that was almost being overlooked by a lot of the industry on the two coasts of this country. And I felt that I wanted to play a, a real deep role in it. The second piece to it is that I felt that as I've gotten older and I've gotten more experience under my belt is that I, I wanted to be part of an industry and, and an environment where I could help giving back to society. And I've always believed that, that technology can be a change for society, can help to um, alleviate some of our most pressing challenges. And I wanted to be a real part of that, help to form what our future would look like. So it's hard to believe it's five years ago that I started the IoT Consortium as a way to bring companies and entrepreneurs and the public sector together to start new business models and to also to help to change some of society's challenges that we have to help to alleviate them using technology. And I think that you said it, thinking about the important role that technology plays, how you really came up in terms of how can we really drive change and do it in a way that it's more in a collective form. Because one of the things that impressed me the most and made me want to join the IOTC was first and foremost, you bring people together, either entrepreneurs, big companies, small companies to work together, even those that may be somewhat competing with each other. How can we really be drivers of change? How can we leverage best practices? And how can we accelerate that change? And that was something that participating in one of your events, I remember the IOTC Next, when you held that in Manhattan last year, it was fantastic, bringing so many people from so many industries, sharing, you know, their journey, sharing their best practices, sharing what has made them modify also their direction towards the future. And I think that's very, very important. And also allowing people to network, to connect, because it's all about connectivity when you think about it. And I think that you have done such a phenomenal job. And thinking about that, Greg, since you started the consortium five years ago, what would you say comes to mind in terms of what have been some of those drivers of change that you have witnessed? 
Yeah, I think, um, and thank you for such kind words uh, about what, we, what we're building, and I say still building. I used to say we're in the top of the second inning of a very long baseball game. Maybe we've progressed to the bottom of the second, but we still have a, a long way to go. You know, I, I think in terms of what have been some of the successes, it's more about the individuals, the brands, and the elected leaders that we have coming together to talk about some of our biggest challenges and to form groups, whether those be task forces that are working on a tangible solution or whether those be more on the thought leadership side about just thinking through really strategically and thoughtfully about what we are creating. Should we be creating the society that we're creating? That has been the biggest success. So five years ago, Alex, I started this with five companies and they were smaller companies. And today the consortium has Comcast and Verizon, MasterCard, Procter & Gamble, Disney, Avis Budget, just to name a few of the dozens of companies that are part of it. And as you shared, it's very unusual to get those companies and those minds together in one room around business challenges. And so I feel blessed and very fortunate to be leading an, an organization and working with such esteemed teams and, and brands to solve societal issues because there's incredible talent that exists in entrepreneurs, and I'm a former entrepreneur my, myself, and oftentimes uh, solutions, and certainly in technology, are often developed outside of a company. And there's also a ton of learning to be gained within companies that have scaled and have very, very strong brand equity with consumers and distribution. And so that combination of entrepreneurs and, and brands is really important. The third angle to this too is a lot of the future technology that we're involved with requires also public leaders to join forces. And so when I organize sessions that bring together city and state leaders with corporations and with entrepreneurs, it's magical, you know, to kind of see that the conversation that, that takes place. The other area I would say in terms of success is I think, and we're doing this in concert with many others, of bringing up this the, the issue of ethics, which also includes diversity and inclusion in technology. And I think that that's an area that I feel very proud of in the summit that you mentioned last year, but in also many initiatives that we put forth, we really think about the humanity, the human aspect of technology, which often gets left behind. You hear so much about automation and productivity, and those are important things. But you know, at the end of the day, it impacts humans, and we have to bring more culture into this sector. And so I'm really proud of the fact that we brought a culture into the technology sector and that as much as we talk about sort of the tech stack and what makes up the IoT, we also talk about the impact that it has on humans. And I've seen that change. I've seen the change start to happen in, in the tech sector. Long way to go, but I, I'm proud that we are sort of pushing that change as an organization. And that is so great. And I remember witnessing when we had the dinner at CES in Vegas with members of the IOTC consortium that it was actually quite phenomenal that I saw a very good balance also in terms of the people that participated, the people that voiced their ideas, that shared questions or that asked questions, that connected with each other. I remember seeing around the tables a much more balanced group, seeing a little bit more women join. And I think that's also very important when we think about having that diversity and inclusion and 
really bringing a lot of great minds together because really when you bring a lot of great minds together you really see huge transformation and i have to congratulate you for the work that you have that you saw way before you actually started all this and seeing you really bringing that vision to life and i know there's still a long journey ahead but you're seeing that change and i've been seeing that change too and i think that's very important and very inspiring thank you alex and my career path has not been linear and many are you know these days but coming in as a so-called outsider to what was called the m2m machine to machine world is beneficial in that way because when i first walked into rooms and conferences and summits and looked around i said this is not the world that i know and this is not who is going to be the client base whether b2b or b2c in this country or in the economy in general and so i felt that it was as much of a business imperative as it was a societal imperative and i think they need to work hand in hand to say that there's a reason why tech adoption hasn't been what it is because it's if it's being designed by a very homogeneous group uh, then it can't possibly sort of extend to all these different constituents. So one of the first things I said is we're going to change the physical makeup of who's actually in the room. And that's why I talk about diversity and inclusion, because it also relates to age. It relates to accessibility, everything, because I was in so many rooms in the beginning of my journey. And I'll take you a half step back of that is that because I didn't come historically from, although I was in digital, particularly on the media side, I didn't come from the deep tech side. The first year or two that I was doing this, I was, it was a complete immersion. I met with everybody that I possibly could meet with from engineers and research scientists and PMs and you name it to, to really get a firm understanding of what IoT is. And then I was able to sort of take a step back once I had that base level of knowledge to say, but the makeup is wrong in terms of the people that are contributing. If I'm working in an area of the future of cities and retail, and autos and homes and healthcare. This cannot be a homogeneous group. You have to bring distinct voices to the table. To me, that's very natural. There's still a lot of work to be done on many, many different sides of the business, and we'll get into that in a second, but it, it felt very natural. The other piece too is I have always in my career said I want to be around people that I want to work with, and that's why I love bringing people together. And as you and I have talked about, now we have to figure out how to do it virtually in a different realm, to get through COVID, but it's still about bringing diverse voices together to help to accelerate the adoption of technology. And I really love one of the things that you just said now in terms of the diversity, it's not only gender or age, it's even thinking about roles and industries, right? Because everyone can really ship in, anybody can contribute and by leveraging each other, it really helps drive change. And I think that there are also some common denominators and common challenges that a lot of industries go through and they just don't know how to tackle it, right? I remember in one of the events from the IOTC that I attended, I was sitting in a table and I had people from different industries. Many of them were marketers or in R&D, but some of them were part of the consumer packaged goods. And consumer packaged goods has had a lot of challenges for several years on how to really become more innovative, how to really leverage technology. And I'm not talking about social media or digital. I'm really thinking about, you know, the internet of things and really seeing them 
how they talk to each other and seeing a lot of these companies really become game changers within their own industry. For example, looking at PNG, all of the things that they're doing in terms of bringing new models, new business models. It's not only really looking at their existing portfolio products, but really coming with new things that are customized to the consumer that the consumer may not go to a store and buy, that it would be customized, cheap and delivered to them. So all of those things really, I think, have been a big contributor. And I can see that in a lot of different companies. For example, how do you make a smart cleanser or a smart toothbrush? How do you really bring that technology to really enhance and address real consumer needs? So it's really exciting. Now, another thing that you were mentioning, Greg, is how the world has shifted. And we know that the last couple of years we've been talking about IOTC is going to be huge. It's growing dramatically. It's no longer Silicon Valley. You see it in many places across the world. You're seeing all of these things evolve or, or transform. However, these last six months have been a real eye-opener for people. And they have been quite transformational for humankind, not only due to the pandemic and the stay-at-home guidelines that not only us in the United States went through, but many countries in Europe, Asia, specifically, of course, China, where they started to experience this. And many of them are still in stay-at-home and following stay-at-home guidelines like many of us still in most cases do. But this situation has helped us evolve on how we interact with each other. How do we connect and talk to each other? How we educate and manage our new normal? Even how do we work? How are we living our daily lives? And I think that thanks in big part to the Internet of Things, children and young adults have succeeded on virtual learning. I have three young girls, as you know, and I've seen them thrive and also a lot of companies, over 90% of corporate employees have been able to work remotely. And many companies in the past would be like, oh, no, no, that's not happening, right? We need people to be in the facility, in the office doing work, being seen doing the work. And a lot of that has shifted and somehow it's been working. I could say myself, having a marketing consulting firm, I'm used to always having the team here, but we have been able to successfully work virtually as well. Now, as we think about all of these dramatic changes, can you imagine living through this pandemic without technology? Not at all. And you know, there's been some funny memes and comics that have come out about imagine if we were in this even 30 years ago without you know, consumer internet or smartphones, what it would look like. Technology is a, is a world changer and it can be really used for good. And you know, you're, you're hundred percent right, Alex, is that we, we've scratched the surface, I think, on some of those changes that we're gonna be seeing over the next nine to 12 months as we're probably the length of time that most industry experts that I'm talking to feel that it will take to get people back into the physical workplace. It doesn't mean that it will ever be the same. I call it the now normal as opposed to the new normal. So it meaning that it's how do we operate now? Because it's changing so rapidly on, as you said, on a week to week basis. And we've seen some major shifts, some major secular shifts taking place over the past decade or so, but 
in all of the experts that I have been speaking to have said that they're seeing 10 years of digital transformation move into three months. So in other words, what they were projecting was going to potentially would happen 10 years down the line is now happening within the period of three months. So whole industries are being disrupted and will continue to be disrupted. And that provides an opportunity too about what can be created. Oftentimes when you're in a downturn, some of the most magical products and services are, are created. And so it provides an opportunity to rethink things that maybe needed to be changed. And I think there's still a long way to go and in terms of educational technology, healthcare, tech, retail, and others. How do we want to reimagine the world that we're not only now in, but that we're going to be emerging from over the next year? And what do we want to do differently? Because we were operating in a certain way the past few decades might not have been the most productive either from a business standpoint or from a interpersonal relations standpoint. So it provides us this white space to help to rethink how we're going about our lives and how we're going about business. Absolutely. And I know that you have built a lot of different virtual events and specific events where you have talked about very specific topics within IoT, you know, from smart cities to smart homes, to telemedicine, to e-commerce, to wearables. Where do you see the biggest shift taking place since this pandemic started? Certainly on the telemedicine and the connected healthcare side of things, I would say is the biggest shift. Part of it has been forced on us as a society is that there, number one, there was somewhat of a fear factor of doctors staying open in their practices, if they had private practices, hospitals were being overrun, couldn't see everybody that particularly as it started when it first started, and it's still happening to some degree around the country in the South and moving up to the Midwest. Telemedicine, and there's a lot of reasons for it. One is the ability to gain access to broadband or internet to be able to connect with a doctor, but there was also some major HIPAA compliance rules that stopped telemedicine from proceeding and that some of those were relaxed during this time period, still are relaxed, to enable this new sort of service to start to take shape and will continue to because outside of COVID, a lot of individuals were not seeing their doctors for not even secondary challenges that they were facing, but real chronic conditions that they weren't able to get in. And, and so if you don't have to take the time to drive to a physical location, go through the security or health checkpoints, if you will, if you can get a consultation, it alleviates somewhat of the pressure of the system. Now, again, there's a lot of work to be done in telemedicine and it relates to kind of the whole ecosystem coming together. And there's a lot of work to be done in terms of the digital divide, both rural and in inner city to make sure everyone has access to it. But if this pandemic has really opened up the door to say, okay, now I think society, the US society is ready for this to take shape. And wouldn't this really be great if we come out of this environment? Because so much of the challenge of our healthcare system, as you know, Alex, has been affordability, but also access to doctors. And so if it becomes more affordable, and if you are able to get access quicker and not strain the system, as it were, and part of the magic of IoT and all these connected devices is that the right information can flow to doctors and to hospital systems so that they could quickly diagnose the challenges and also provide medication or uh, processes to help to alleviate the medical challenge that somebody's having. And so that exchange of data in the right way, as long as it's protected, is really powerful. And telemedicine is a big component to that. So that's one area that we're seeing a big shift. Retail has changed dramatically as well. So 
retail had been challenged. There had been a push towards e-commerce direct to consumer way before COVID. That's not new. What is new is, and, and we've all talked about omnichannel as a term that everybody has to think about multiple channels to reach the consumer. What has changed dramatically is supply chain is that all of a sudden companies that were selling to retailers had to rethink, do we go direct to consumer? Do you have to change the UPC code in order to get it to the consumer? What does that look like? Do new distribution centers have to be developed because no longer are folks actually going into a store? How do you think about a store? Do you shrink the actual merchandise that's in a store, no matter what kind of store it is, to allow for more curbside delivery or to allow for direct to consumer shipping? And so there's been a sea change in terms of the supply chain side of retail. And then there's the experience side of retail too. If you can't physically go and touch and feel the products, how can you distinguish one from the other? So you're seeing things even in virtual reality where fashion houses are now starting to do shows in that environment, whereas you may historically have gone to a physical show or to a, a retailer. So it, that's really been a, a game changer. Transportation has changed in a way I think we wouldn't have predicted it to have changed during COVID. You heard through IOTC and other places that there's a move towards autonomous vehicles, self-driving vehicles, and that's continuing to progress perhaps somewhat a little bit less than prior to COVID because it's not as big of a priority now for the corporations that are involved for the OEMs. What has changed is really being thoughtful about what does the future of a city look like and what does the future of transportation look like? And how do you do that in a way where there's contactless surfaces? So you and I live outside of New York City. I can't say that I'm proud that in New York City subways in 2020, we still don't have contactless payments in all of our, our subway systems, um, where they do in, in many other, in Europe and in Asia. Now with COVID, there's more of an urgency around this about not having devices where you have to touch or physically take cash or put in a card. And so there's a movement towards that contactless payment in all of transportation. At the same time, there's more of a question about what is the safest form of transportation to move a lot of individuals within a constrained space. So is it safe to move towards e-bikes and scooters and to convert streets, which are powered by you know IoT products and services? Is it more mass transit? Some would say it's safer to be in your own vehicle, in your own car. So in certain pockets of the country, actually driving is up. And I'll close with, because I know we could talk about this question all day. On the home front, what's changed is what we're doing right now. Zoom has really you know, changed the face of the future of work or home and work and education coming together. And so it's been less about sort of the evolution of the smart home ecosystem and more about how can we physically do our jobs while we're at work and make sure that kids are being educated and make sure your workforce is being trained. So just a, a few of many examples of what we're seeing in terms of shift during COVID. And thank you so much for sharing that. I have to say, thinking about health and wellness and telemedicine, I absolutely agree. I think that some years back, you know, when you look at Europe, and Asia, but specifically Europe, they were significantly more advanced in telemedicine in some of the Scandinavian countries, even having the virtual pharmacist, and then you would get things delivered to your home. And even some of the retailers that in the UK, in Korea, and of course, China, have really transformed the world of retail prior to COVID. Now, when I see where many doctors used to be skeptical about telemedicine, they know that it's a way to best treat their patients and to keep them safe, to keep their staff safe, and to keep themselves healthy and safe as well. And I see that significantly, a big change in the United States, and also through 
virtual pharmacies, although the concept of virtual pharmacies is not entirely developed, you could see more like CVS really bringing more things, even delivered to your door, your prescriptions that you don't have to enroll online, but depending on your needs, you can get that. Access, like you said earlier, is so, so critical. And then another thing that you were mentioning about the world of retail, yes, I would say the last eight years, you have seen tremendous evolution and innovation in the world of retail. But I think that one of the things that it's going to impact retail the most is a lot of companies need to get out of their comfort zone. Because one of the things that I see is, look, I, I love going to stores, but I rely a lot on buying online for many years because of how busy I am. But since COVID-19, I haven't entered into a supermarket for over five months. So what do I do? I buy online. And there were some places, some websites, Fresh Direct, et cetera, that all of a sudden you couldn't order or you had to wait a month to get delivery. I love Whole Foods, which is great. At least I could get that. But Trader Joe's is one of my favorites. And there's no home delivery. There's no online. I was never the biggest fan of Walmart because I found the stores too big and very crowded typically. But I decided they launched walmartgrocery.com and I started really ordering from there. The beginning, it was great, Greg. I was placing an order on a Friday or a Saturday and I would get it the next day. I would have the driver text me, telling me that the order was on its way. They would tell me their car model, just like when you would get Uber, right? Very similar. But then the last two or three times that I have placed orders, the driver calls me because when he goes to the store, they don't have the order ready. They can't find the order or they're out of stock. And one of the things that I say to retailers like that, especially companies like Walmart, which is still a huge retailer globally, we need to innovate. We need to address our consumer needs. And I think the role of technology and really making sure that their supply chain is right, like you were saying earlier, making sure that the whole process is correctly in place is going to be important because if not, you're going to have consumers like me or shoppers like me that after one or two mistakes, guess what? We're going to find a new way. We're going to find a new retailer that we can rely on. And to your point about e-commerce, I think that I was looking at some of the research from McKinsey, and it's not only in the United States, it's across the world. About 40% of people are afraid to go to a store. When they go, they want to make sure that the health and sanitation is in place, that people are wearing masks, that employees are wearing gloves as they put the food in bags, in shopping bags, etc. So people are really observing all of these things. At the same time, companies, manufacturers have a very important role. You think about Reggie Benkiser. Right now, everybody's all about Lysol. Where can you find Lysol? Nowhere. <laughs> Nowhere. I reach out. To, and I actually did recently a podcast talking about this. I reached out to Wrecking Ben Kieser folks saying, you just started writing in social media that your Lysol kills the COVID-19 virus. But what's the point if people cannot find it anywhere in the world? What's the mm -hmm. point? You're actually disappointing people. You're actually making them 
be mad because they have yeah. to rely on other traditional methods, right? Typical water and soap, cleaning the best possible way, washing their hands constantly because they can't find the products that they need the most. Thinking about all those things, I think that you have addressed them right, that companies have to come together. They really have to start thinking differently because we are in a survival mode and not saying it in terms of being alive or not, but really in a survival mode in terms of businesses not disappearing. And that's very important. Now, one thing that you brought and that I thought was great is transportation. In the past, I would get an Uber or I would take the train to New York, but I'm thinking about all those people, millions of people that have to take transportation, how to keep them safe. And I think that you brought a very important point that that's where we have a really big challenge ahead of us because as more companies start to reopen and start bringing employees in, how are they going to keep them safe also in that journey from leaving their home to actually coming to work and then leaving work and going back to their homes. So I thought that was very important. Now, thinking about data privacy, Greg, that's something that is in consumers top of mind, is in our top of mind, and in many companies top of mind. Why would you say is crucial to really provide more confidence in people in data privacy. I'm thinking from a smart home to that security device and not having someone talk to you or doing a Zoom meeting and not have something appear on your screen that shouldn't appear on your screen. And what would you say about what companies should be thinking of as a way to really enhance and build consumer confidence in data privacy? Yeah, it's a great question, Alex. I want to take a just a half a step back on data as it relates to COVID, because I think things have changed as it has in all technology. I think it's changed with respect to people's view on data in the last three months. It's always been about a value exchange for consumers. If the feeling is that they're getting more value by giving their data up, then they will accept sort of, a, I don't want to use the word consequences, but the results of that data being used. And you see it in younger individuals in terms of social media, where the value exchange of providing what they're doing, where they're doing it, with whom they're doing it with, if they are getting enjoyment, then they'll accept the fact that they're getting advertising that's targeted to them because they are ascribing enough value to those platforms in order to make that data exchange. In COVID, what started to change as we started to, as a society, to talk about contact tracing and making sure that people were safe was that consumers started to relax a little bit of, older consumers, relax a little bit of their feeling or their, the stringent sort of guardrails that they put around their data if they felt that it would make them safer from a health perspective in society, i.e. they'd be more willing to give up information on who they've been exposed to or where they've been if they feel that that would contribute to making our country healthier, getting through this virus quicker. And we're right in the middle of that. So I wanted to set that context as we talk about data. What we're seeing pre-COVID with GDPR in, in Europe moving here and CCPA in California being enacted and companies and retailers starting to think about what does that mean from a data privacy perspective and how does that relate to consumers COVID hit and it somewhat changed their perception, at least for right now, around data. Now, I want to get to your question about how do you 
provide the right context? How should companies be organizing around data to make sure that their constituents, whether they're businesses or consumers, feel safe? Transparency is always the guiding principle here. To make sure that your constituents, again, whether that's business or consumers, understand how their data is being used. Now, we all see in practice that you want to get to a website in two-point font, 10 pages worth of information that says click here to get to the page, and you just want to see the sports score, and so you click on. We all have seen that a million times. We've all participated in it. Again, that value exchange, I want to get to what I want to get to. Transparency and simplicity is what I would say is really important for companies to provide. We are not a foolproof society. There will never be a situation where there won't be some sort of intrusion on data. Now, you can try to protect it as much as you can, and there are a lot of processes and ways to go about that by design of products and services. Also, guardrails on how that data can be sold from a company using many forms of multi-authentication. So different form factors for authenticating that's you as an individual. And some of those are in place already today. Some of those are being developed, but you see it even before getting to the internet of things. We've even seen it in industry 2.0 that there's intrusions all the time on data in retail. It happened to Twitter a week or two ago. It's happened to parts of the grid, energy grids. And so this is something as a society, as we continue to progress in technology, you need to understand that it's always going to be a challenge. There are always going to be bad actors that try to get in in one way or another. It affects elections. We've seen transparency and simplicity are the best ways to kind of think about data. And then the third is making sure that you're providing that right value exchange to your customer. If you're saying, trust me with your data, and that might be a credit card company, you're providing a service back. We've become as a society that we want everything instantaneously. Just as I mentioned, that website, sports site, I want to click on, I want it immediately, as opposed to when we were all growing up, we waited for the newspaper to come in the next day or maybe caught it on the radio, what the score was. Now I want it constantly fresh, right? And we want it for everything. We want that for retail, just-in-time delivery. And that's only progressing in the COVID environment is that it used to be, okay, I can wait two days. Now it has to be same day. Now it has to be within a certain number of hours. The exchange for that is that you're giving up information about where you are, where you're physically located, you know, what exactly are your preferences so people can try to predict that from an inventory management perspective. And so there's work that needs to be done on both ends. If you want that convenience, then you have to understand that you're trading off some level of privacy for that convenience. And that could be, we do so much work in voice activation. That's also a method of convenience. It's much easier for me to shout at my Alexa device to turn off my alarm (laughs) this morning five times, Alex, and getting up. But now Amazon knows that I'm setting my alarm for today was 6.15 and 6.20 and 6.25 and 6.30. So I'm giving up that information to Amazon, right? I could easily have an alarm clock next to me that's a little bit more cumbersome, but it's back to that frictionless and convenience experience that we have. So lots of work to be done, and there are a lot of credible individuals and companies that are working on this challenge. It will always be a challenge in society to make sure that data is privacy. And I think there also needs to be understand, I'll talk a minute about, we do a lot of work with cities and smart cities. And when you think about data exchange in a city, it's really complicated. Who owns that information? Is it the city official? Is it the companies that are generating that data? Is it the consumer, her or himself, that's owning that data? And again, in a city, people want access to work. They want access to healthcare. They want access to entertainment. And it's important that that data is shared in a way to make a city run more efficiently. And so there's a lot of controversy today around facial recognition as it relates to diversity. We've seen 
Microsoft and IBM and others, uh, Amazon, have decided they're moving away from facial recognition because of diversity and inclusion potential challenges, meaning that they were misrepresenting certain people or they were giving that information to whether it be law enforcement or, or other associations that could target a particular group. Flip side is that facial recognition helps with contactless payments. If you walk mm -hmm. into a store, Alex, and it knows who you are and it doesn't have to identify you, frictionless, right? It helps with home security. So if it could recognize well, that I live in my house versus somebody else who's coming, or if it can recognize that this service worker comes every week because they're providing, you know, lawn care or for a lot of consumers, they would welcome that. There's a difference between an individual that you might not know personally that takes care of your home services and a complete stranger that's coming that might be a menace to your home. And so facial recognition technology can be used for that purpose, but it's a data exchange. If you're using it, then that data is being generated. So we also have a lot of work as a society to figure out what are the norms. And as I call that now normal, it really changes. It changes very rapidly depending on the situation. As I mentioned before COVID in the US, there was a real movement towards protecting individual privacy in always shapes or forms and perhaps setting up new types of social networks or digital networks that don't allow any data exchange. But when COVID hit, and it became about sharing your data, including your cell phone information of where you've been, became much more acceptable as a society because we wanted to know who was being exposed or not. So long answer to say it's evolving, and I would still go back to the transparency and simplicity as the way to try to mitigate any kind of risk of data exposure. I have to say, Greg, I think that that was excellent. I think that you touch on very important points throughout when you think about data privacy. One of the things that brings me is when I think about data privacy, facial recognition, for example, we use AI technology and facial recognition is important. I know companies like NEC, which are located, they own the building where we are. Facial recognition is part of their technology and that helps save people's lives. That helps a lot of different things. And to your point, I think that there is how much are we as consumers willing to trade off and how is that data going to end up being used, right? I think about just considering about COVID-19 right now, I have good friends in Korea, in Japan and in Shanghai, and they've been telling me that everything is through facial recognition. They know where people are from the mobile, uh, they know through an app, they can follow and have better history in terms of contact tracing. So when you think about all of those things, that has helped minimize making the pandemic worse, where they have huge populations, right? Over 1.4, 1.5 billion, just thinking in China alone or Japan, where you have the per capita highest elderly population in the world where you know, they would close an average of 400 schools every year because they have more of an elderly population, 65 plus. With contact tracing, one of the things that I've seen is not everyone is on the same page. They want to know, they want to be in places where they can feel safe and protected, but at the same time, many people are not willing to share that information. So I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done and 
We've seen a lot of change, right, this last couple of years in terms of data privacy. It's quite interesting that sometimes we could be talking about something and maybe talking about Peloton. And then when I open my phone, I'm going to start seeing Peloton ads. We understand that data is out there and information is power. It's more about trying to find that right balance. And I think that there's a lot of work to get done, but there's a lot that we as consumers also expect. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Greg, in terms of sustainability, I know that we're going through a lot of things in terms of, despite the Paris Agreement, most companies in the United States decided to follow that. And we know that technology has been very important. And we've seen a lot of innovation in terms of sustainability from smart homes, smart cars, where you know you just need to charge your car. I decided, for example, for the first time to go to a fully electric car with Tesla. I'm getting it soon. I had never ordered through my phone. I get texts and that's it. I go to the website. I think that you drive a Tesla, right? So you have to give me some insights. But just making the decision of trying the car, seeing that I didn't have to put any fuel, all the benefits, the savings, the advantages, I thought that was remarkable. What do you say in your perspective and in your area of expertise are the things that you see that are going to help the Internet of Things really play a pivotal role in sustainability? Yeah, you know, Alex, I would answer that kind of in two parts. I think there's a lot being done in sustainability outside of the Internet of Things as well. And so when you think about packaging as an example, where there are a lot of companies that are moving towards sustainable, recyclable packaging, some of that falls outside of kind of the realm of IoT. But there are, you just mentioned the electrification of cars, and that's an example that very much is related to IoT. So I would say it exists on both fronts. Well, I think what it comes down to in a lot of our conversation, what it's coming down to is having a common purpose. And so if a common purpose is to lower carbon emissions as a society, you know, we all saw during COVID, it was an unintended effect that there were certain fish that were appearing or dolphins that were appearing in, in, in Venice. And so there were things that were happening just because we dialed back our commercial activity, our manufacturing, and that was a period of time and that had nothing to do per se with IoT technology. I've always said that the layers exist for us to have a much more sustainable society. Now there needs to be the common purpose to do so as a panoply of citizens, of corporations, of political leaders that say that this is a mandate, that we need to do this together, and how can we use technology to do it better? And there are a lot of ways. So when we were talking about, you and I were talking about the reinvention of retail, you know, the, a lot of what started is there's been a movement towards curbside delivery, which still entails getting in your car and going and picking something up. Or delivery, you know, from a fleet management perspective of there are cars that are picking up those packages and delivering it to your home. And so when you think about the development of maybe drones, as an example, could that be done in a more sustainable way? Or could there be a conversion by Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and others to say, we're only going to drive sustainable cars, electric cars, and we're going to provide fleet to any of the gig workers, right? So that, because we often think about that in terms of individual drivers, not the commercial drivers that are then moving around delivering inventory. So there's a lot of technology that exists too, to have cleaner water 
to mitigate fire damage, to mitigate damage from natural disasters. We're always seeing, and you know, beautiful island that you're from where there's always natural disasters that come through. And then think about all the rebuilding that has to take place and even the commercial rebuilding that has to take place. So can you develop societies that are more sustainable through technology to be able to read earlier when something is coming or to be able to construct residences and commercial properties that are more sustainable to damage. So a lot of that technology exists. It now requires enormous will and coordination of these factors to kind of come together. And that's our biggest challenge in the next century ahead is to say, we can do all this. What do we want to do together? as a society. I'm very encouraged on what technology can do. A lot of that technology has been in place for decades and there just hasn't been the right will, you know, for folks. And back to why I started the consortium is that as ironically as we've become a much more globalized society, in many ways we've become more fractured as a society and there are all these different parts that are moving in different directions. So what winds up happening is there might be a natural disaster in Houston or then it moves to Los Angeles and it moves around to the East Coast. And it's almost an afterthought once that happens, as opposed to saying, could we have a task force that works on this together and understands where those common challenges are? And with the water treatment in Flint, Michigan, as an example, where there was a disaster, that's not only Flint, Michigan, that's a challenge that relates to the water supply around the country. So technology, again, exists to be able to measure the cleanliness, sanitization of water. Is it being deployed? And not just in the U.S., but in third world countries. So big opportunity. And Alex, you and I were talking before the call about purpose-driven brands and purpose-driven companies. And now you're starting to see real business leaders say, I'm only investing in companies or in initiatives that bring sustainability to the forefront, that we have to leave our planet in a better place. And Unilever and Nestle and Procter and & Gamble and many others are some of the leaders, but they're also really interesting companies like BlackRock. I think that the more that this becomes a business mandate, because so much of what changes in society, at least today, is happening by business leaders that are kind of coming in, then we'll really start to see the C-shift. Technology exists. We as an organization try to bring these leaders together to move these initiatives forward. Now that the challenge is for all of us to say, let's prioritize this in the next decade and the century to come. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Greg. You're absolutely right. I wanted to ask you if you could share a little bit more about the IOTC, especially for our listeners. How could they learn more about IOTC and where they could learn about the programs, any virtual events that you may have, or any upcoming events, any newsletters, or looking towards becoming a member? Where could they find that information? Yeah, thanks so much, Alex. And really my pleasure. Multiple ways for, for everybody to get involved or to learn more about the IOTC. Of course, we have a website which is I, the letter I, of things.org, I of things.org. We're very active on social media, so we have to stay current in the times and encourage everybody to follow us in particular on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm getting better at Instagram and we have not migrated to TikTok yet, but that may need to be next. But certainly on those two channels, um, Alex, we just launched a Slack channel. So many individuals have told us that they want to participate in our activities and the knowledge sharing. And so we have multiple Slack channels for different interests, one on retail, one on home, 
where you can network with people offline. So don't even always need to be tethered to, to the device when there's a live program, but you can use our Slack channel. We are starting a new, a second part of a series we call IOTC Now, which we, once COVID hit, we launched in the spring, a virtual summit, if you will, virtual series, series of, of topics with panelists around the most pressing issues in technology. And deliberately called it now because I mentioned the now normal is what we're all facing. And for business leaders, they need to be up to speed on what other like-minded individuals that perhaps even in other industries are doing and are willing to collaborate on in terms of moving people out of the pandemic and helping us to stay productive and stay mentally well. So we'll be launching that in September, the next version of IOTC Now. And you can check out our website for information about that. You can also always contact me directly, greg at iofthings.org, greg at iofthings.org. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have, but I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to come and speak to you. As always, it's a pleasure to see you. And to everybody that's listening, thank you for being part of our conversation today. I really want to encourage everyone to really check out the IOTC website. I really want to thank you, Greg, because I really appreciate you. I appreciate your time. I really wish that we would be together face to face, but it's been fantastic to have you here join us virtually. I know that you're super busy. You're doing a lot of different things at the same time. And I think it's going to be great for our listeners to learn more and to become part of the program and get to follow you and see what are some of the most relevant topics that they could also learn and share with their organizations so they can also contribute and continue to make a difference. So thank you so much to everyone who's been listening. I want to wish you all uh, to stay healthy, continue to stay healthy and to continue to stay savvy and optimistic. 